Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in to our Bible study podcast. Today, I want to deal with John chapter 6. Now, in a week or two, I want to begin a study through Psalm 139. This is the great personal, intimate psalm in which the attributes or the qualities of Almighty God are brought right down to where we live. And it's just a very engaging passage. I'm, in fact, working on memorizing it now. So you may be wanting to read ahead towards that. But for today, I want to deal with John chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles nearby or you're where you can get them and follow with me, then do so. As you're doing that, I want to give you a couple of suggestions for how to get the material, the Bible teaching that we are trying to provide to your children and into their hearts and minds. And there are a couple of ways of doing this. One is with our 59-second sermons. I teach through the Bible one minute at a time, literally 59 seconds every morning. I post a Bible teaching video. Right now I'm going through the book of Hebrews, one minute at a time, one verse at a time. And not many people have family devotions anymore. But when you take your children in, or maybe before you send them off to school in the morning, to listen to this with them is a way of having instant family devotions and getting the Word of God in their hearts. I would just love to be able to spend one minute every day with your child or with your children. And we can do that on Facebook or Instagram with these 59-second sermons. Another way is with our Audible products. All of my books are available, or at least most of them, are available uh, in electronic form audibly. So I use Audible. I can download my own books onto Audible. And so when you travel with your family in the car, or maybe even just back and forth to school, it depends on your commute or your distance with them, but to be able to get some scripture in them, I think that most of my books are at, at a point that the paragraphs are short enough and the sentences and the words and the concepts are simple enough so that children will pick up more than you think they will. So both through the 59-second sermons on Facebook and Instagram and then through the Audible books we offer, this is an easy way to engage the content of Scripture with your children, because you never know what the Lord may do with a child or with a youngster, and that's really what we are talking about today in this wonderful story of John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is a very familiar story, but I hope that I'll be able to bring out some things today that maybe will be fresh to you, even if you're familiar with this story, and we can see it with new eyes. So let's begin just by reading the text. So I am reading now from the New International Version, John chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. 
Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? He asks this only to test him, for he already had in his mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated, and they ate as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Then the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, and they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and to make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Well, this is one of the Bible's best-known stories. Many people don't know very much about the Bible, and this might be a new story for them. And if so, frankly, I'm envious of them because I would love to hear this story again as though I were hearing it for the first time. But if you've been in church at all or read very much in the New Testament, you're familiar with this famous story of the multiplication of the bread and the fish. I remember hearing this story as a child in Sunday school. So I want to show you six aspects of this story as though we were looking at it for the first time. This is a prefigured miracle. A prefigured miracle. Jesus Christ is not the first person in the Bible to take a handful of barley loaves and multiply them miraculously in order to feed a crowd. Somebody has done this already. This miracle was not original to our Lord. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 4, something very similar happened in the days of the prophet Elisha. Elisha had a crowd of about 100 people, probably students in the ministerial school where he taught. And there was a time of famine, and the students didn't have enough to eat, but a man came bringing some barley loaves as a gift, the very same kind of bread the little boy had in John chapter 6. It is John's accounting of the story that tells us that these loaves were made out of barley, which was considered a poor man's bread. Well, the man in the Old Testament brought his several loaves to Elisha, and he said, I'm bringing these to you. And Elisha said, we'll distribute it among my hungry students. And the man was embarrassed. He said, in effect, I didn't bring nearly enough for all of these hungry students. What I brought 
won't feed all of these hungry people. I only brought a few loaves, but you have a hundred people here. But Elisha told him to break and to distribute the bread anyway. And as he did so, the bread multiplied in his hands and everyone had all they could eat and there was still bread left over. This is exactly what Jesus did in John chapter 6 and in actually in all four of the Gospels. Only our Lord magnified this miracle by a factor of at least 500. He fed not 100 people, but 5,000 people and probably a great deal more. Nevertheless, every one of those Jewish recipients experiencing this miracle knew that they were seeing someone who was like Elijah and Elisha, only much greater. It was a reenactment of an Old Testament miracle that all of them had read about, but of course none of them had experienced. It took their minds back to the days of Elijah and Elisha, and with this miracle, Jesus was saying, there is one standing among you who is greater than Elisha the prophet. I also think this miracle is prefigured by the manna that fed the Israelites in the desert. Jesus indicated that later in the chapter, and also by the scene in Psalm 23 where the good shepherd had the sheep lay down in green grass and by the still waters, and he prepared a table for them in the wilderness. But time will not allow us to unfold those other passages. Suffice to say, there are definite Old Testament overtones to this miracle. So it is a prefigured miracle. It's also a public miracle. The feeding of 5,000 was obviously done in public. Some of our Lord's miracles were private. He would usher everybody out, and then he would go in and heal the person in private. Or on one occasion, he took the man beyond the city limits and healed him and did so privately. Some were semi-privates. Uh, miracles, such as when he turned the water into wine. Some were seen just by the disciples, such as when the Lord walked on water. But this miracle, the feeding of 5,000, was seen by more people than any other miracle Jesus did during his lifetime. There were more eyewitnesses to this miracle than to any other miracle that Jesus did as recorded in the Bible. I've just read a book on archaeology that estimates the population of Galilee in the first century was about 175,000 people. Some of those were Gentiles, many of them were, who lived in several rather large cities in that area. But most of the Jewish residents lived in villages of maybe 2,000 people or less. But let's take the 175,000 figure. If we have 5,000 men... And if that truly means men, so that we um, also have to add women and children, then there were perhaps 10,000 people who saw this miracle. 10,000 out of 175,000. That means that roughly 6% of the entire population of Galilee saw this miracle at the very same moment, and they not only saw it, but they experienced it. Now, this has an apologetic value. If one or two claim to have seen a miracle, we might question it. But when thousands of people testify and see and experience the same thing, it is very difficult to discredit that miracle. So it is a public miracle. It's also a Passover miracle. The Passover was the Jewish festival that commemorated 
the departure of Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus, even though this is the one, uh, I should say, even though this is only one of our Lord's miracles apart from the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels, John is the only one to tell us that this occurred near the time of the Passover. John chapter 6, verse 4 says the Jewish Passover is near. The Apostle John structured his gospel around three different Passovers that came through our Lord's ministry. Do you know when people say, how long did Jesus engage in ministry? Then typically we say about three years. But how do we know that? Nothing in the New Testament tells us that. But John does tell us what happened before and after three different annual Passovers. Now, the Passover was a Jewish festival that occurred in the springtime. And because of John's three Passovers that he described, we have an idea about the length of our Lord's ministry. Well, what happened the first Passover in John's gospel is recorded in John chapter 2, when Jesus went to Jerusalem and he cast out the money changers. This story here in John 6 tells that near the time of the Passover, Jesus was out in Galilee and he did the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. This means that our Lord is one year away from the Passover week at the end of John's gospel during which he would die for the sins of the world. So notice what Jesus did on this second Passover. He broke bread. And later in this chapter, he preached a sermon about it. Look down at verse 35, John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And again in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And almost exactly one year later, Jesus revived this teaching in the upper room when he took the bread and broke it and passed it out to the disciples and said, take and eat, for this is my body, which was broken for you. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, it wasn't just a humanitarian act of kindness. John called it a sign. It was signifying how he himself was the bread of life and who would be broken in order to meet the needs, the eternal hunger and thirst of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people who would come to him. It was a Passover miracle. Fourth, it was a probing miracle. Now let's go back to chapter 6 of John and verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I just absolutely love that verse. I'll circle back to it in a moment. Verse 7, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough food for each one to have even just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Now, what should Philip and Andrew have said? Jesus was probing their faith that says he was testing them. He was giving them an impossible situation and asking them how it should be handled. Now, he does the same thing for you and me. 
He does exactly the same thing for you and me. He gives us impossible situations and says, now what are you going to do? Think of some problem right now that's causing you to stress. We all have one. Maybe it's a little problem, or maybe it's a medium-sized problem, or maybe it's a massive problem. And Jesus has allowed us to be engaged with this problem. It is weighing us down. It's in our hearts. And he says to us, what are you going to do about it? Well, how do you answer? We often answer the way Peter and, or Philip and Andrew did. We, they, they just threw up their hands and said in exasperation, we cannot handle it. We don't have an answer. We don't know what to do. What are we going to do? We're in trouble here. That was their basic answer. Now, let me ask you, on reflection, what answer should they have given? The answer that they gave was full of unbelief. What answer should they have given? If we can figure that out, then we will know much more accurately how to confront our own difficulties. Their answer would have been much better had they simply added a little bit to it. Lord, we cannot handle this, but we know you can. You already know what you are going to do. Now, that would have turned unbelief into belief and little faith into great faith. So let's go back to your problem, whether it's a small one, a medium one, or a large one. Don't just say, Lord, I can't handle it. Say, Lord, I cannot handle it, and I do not know what to do. But I know that you can handle it, and you do know what to do. In fact, you already know what you are going to do. That's what verse 7 says. He already knows what he is going to do. The Lord knows in your situation with all of the affairs of your life what he is going to do. He knows how he is going to resolve it, how he's going to approach it. He knows the way that he's going to take. He knows in his timing how it's all going to work out. So we have to say, Lord, I don't know. And it does seem impossible. And I'm exasperated. But I believe that you can handle it, that you already know what you are going to do. And so I'm going to trust you, Lord. What shall we now do together? What do you want me to do? Lord, guide me through this situation. That would have been the right answer for Andrew and Philip, and it's the right answer for us. So it was a probing miracle. Now, this was also a prolific miracle. I have no idea how Jesus multiplied so much food so quickly. I wish that I could have seen his fingers work. I wonder if he sped up into super time, into warp speed, his fingers, and I just don't know. But I do know this, that what he did is indicative of his entire gospel mission. Notice that there are three parties here. There is the Lord Jesus Christ, the stranger of Galilee, the one who was from the beginning, the omnipotent God himself in human form. In fact, he was a human. There were the vast multitudes who were hungry in both stomach and soul, and between them, these disciples. All the disciples had to do was to take the bread from the master to the masses. And as they did, the operation multiplied. I'm not sure John was recording this with the idea of its being analogous to the spread of the gospel, but it's hard to avoid that application. Jesus gives us the message of the living bread to take to the masses 
and we're just ordinary people, and yet somehow the operation multiplies, and we cannot even explain the chain reaction of the gospel. This week I read in the Baptist press about a boy in a Muslim nation. His name was Abdul. That wasn't really his name, but they were disguising his name because he was in danger. So they named him in the story, in the true journal, uh, journalist's account, Abdul. Abdul began questioning the truthfulness of Islam when he was a boy, and his family was upset. So he went out for a long walk to try to think through it, and by and by, he heard the sound of something coming up behind him, and he turned to look, and it was a rickshaw. And to his surprise, the rickshaw stopped, and a man said to him, Hey, brother, do you want to get up in the rickshaw and ride with me? Abdul was stunned. He had never done anything like that in his life, and no one had ever invited him to do anything like that. So he got up in the rickshaw, and as they rode along, the man gave Abdul a New Testament. When the boy returned home, he began reading his New Testament in this very gospel, the Gospel of John. And that night, he asked Jesus to come into his heart and to save him. When this became known, Abdul was rejected, he was beaten, he was abused by his family and friends. He ended up living alone in a shack for three years. His mother secretly brought him food. But those three years were like the three years that Jesus spent with the disciples. Abdul studied the scriptures day and night, and the missionary, who was the man who had been in the rickshaw, and a local pastor came and taught him in secret and he grew in his faith. Later, when he was older, Abdul was beaten again. But this time, an old classmate named Rafiq took pity on him and tended to his wounds, and before you knew it, Rafiq was also saved. Abdul said, yesterday, I was one. Today, we are two. Tomorrow, we could be 200. And that's what happened. Rafiq soon won and baptized 36 people to the Lord in a neighboring village, and his bamboo house became a center for Bible study in that area. The gospel spread and churches were planted everywhere. One night, Rafiq was stabbed to death, but to this day, Abdul continues the movement. And as of the, as of the date of the article that I read, there are 350 evangelists in this extended area, nearly 2,300 pastors, 4,000 churches, and nearly 100,000 people have been baptized, and nearly all of them are spiritual descendants of Abdul. And it's all because a man on a rickshaw gave him a ride and a New Testament, and the bread began to multiply. That's the story of all of Christian history. We don't do the multiplying we simply convey the bread of life to a hungry world, but somehow, under the power and the influence of our Lord Jesus, it multiplies just as truly, just as surely, just as certainly as the bread and the fish multiplied on that spring day by the Sea of Galilee. If you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, you are already part of this thing. The multiplication has yielded you and me into the kingdom, and our job is now to share a loaf of this gospel bread with someone else. So it is a prolific miracle. And finally, it is a personal miracle. There is one more thing that impressed me as I studied this passage again. Let's go back and look at verse 1. 
Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. Notice it says, a great crowd. And then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd, the same terminology, coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to buy to have a bite. And verse 8, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, there is a boy here with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Great crowd, great crowd, small loaves, small fish. Well, we could almost call this story large crowd, small lunch. But our Lord delights in using small things to do great things and ordinary people to do things that are extraordinary. And that's what's so very lovely about this wonderful story. It's wrong to measure yourself by others. I know that we all tend to do it. We want to be as good looking or have the same kind of car, or the same kind of house, or as much money, or as much respect, or as much prestige, or as much or more status, and we look around at everybody else. But we don't have to be rich or famous or great or mighty. The Lord can use little people, little Bible verses, little New Testaments. He can use little words of encouragement, little efforts at evangelism, little acts of kindness. He can use little gifts and little prayers. He can use little churches. In fact, whenever a pastor comes up to me and says, I pastor a small church here or there, I always remind him there are no small churches. Because when God is involved with it, then it is his power delighting to use things that are weak. His stature delighting to use things that are small. His grace just rejoicing and glorifying in the fact that he can use things that to so many other people would seem to be unusable. So we don't have to measure ourselves by one another, and we don't have to always try to keep doing big things or to have great things or even to attend great churches. Some of us are led to be in a mega church, and others, well, we may be in a house church. But it doesn't matter if the Lord is there. Many years ago, Katrina and I attended a reception at the Opryland Hotel, during which a world-famous musician was going to sing one song. Now, this man was very famous. He was as famous as a musician could be. And when the time came for him to sing, I wondered which of his signature songs he would choose. I could think of any number that he would have sung, and I wouldn't have known that these were songs that he had made famous, but he didn't sing any of those. He sang instead a little-known gospel song, which is why I remember the event so clearly. He sang a song, the title and the lyrics said, Little as much when God is in it. And the song, if I can remember the words, says, Little as much when God is in it, 
labor not for wealth or fame, for there's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. You and I don't have to be great. Those loaves were small and made from barley, which, as I said, was the bread of poor people. The little fish were probably about the size of minnows, just a little boy's lunch. Yet with minnows, Jesus fed the many. With minnows, he fed the multitude. The Lord uses whatever is fully placed in his omnipotent hands. He uses whoever is fully placed in his nail-scarred hands. So trust the Lord to use you in a tremendous way in this new year. Well, thank you for joining me for our study of John chapter 6 and the story of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. This podcast is produced by Joshua Rowe and his company, Clearly Media. It is edited by Courtney Warner. The print editing is done by Sherry Anderson. The blog posting by Luke Tyler. Music is done by Elijah Rowe. And keep sharing this podcast with other people and let them know that we're out here teaching the Bible every single week. And may God be with you until we meet again.